This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I enjoyed our live podcast with Jude Allen. That was fun. That, that was really fun. I uh, I was, it, as I was saying, it was like, was so nervous beforehand. I was just just didn't know what to expect it's like when we record the show i somehow think nobody's listening and then to see people manifested there was really exciting but also um exciting is a, a nice nervous. that's a nice word for that i don't think <laughs> I, I it makes it it makes it way more stressful like it's yeah. i don't have too much trouble just like chatting you know right but uh, with people sitting there with their sort of expectant faces, like, <laughs> educate us and be entertaining at the same time, continuously for for 40 minutes, please go. And, and uh, that was hard. I, actually, I, I, quite, I did quite like it. I, you know, kind of warmed up. And actually, I thought Jude was great when it was, um, especially for the Q&A at the end. Yes. You just saw him, like, really, really loosen up and engage with the audience. Maybe he and, likes talking uh, with them more than he liked talking with us. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it was a better this or that. I think it was just like, oh, the show's over. I can relax now. And yeah, um, yeah no, I, re- I really enjoyed it. Thank good. you so I'm... much to Beta Brand for yeah, having us. Beta Brand, you guys rock. Um, I also want to kind of thank the members of the SF Bay Photo Walks meetup group who came in numbers to support us. And um, it's great to see people there. That was kind of, yeah. it's like seeing your t- school teachers in the grocery store, like in the real world. Kind of, you know what I mean? <laughs> Is that what happened to you? I, yes, I, 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 school teachers do exist in the real world. No, but they don't. When you're a kid, they don't exist in the real world. And then there's that day when you see your school teacher like out with her family or at the grocery store, and you think, "Huh, I guess she's a real person." <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? I should be nicer. I should uh, that, listen. That changes my in- attitude entirely. You know, I think, <laughs> um, or you know, anyway. Uh, so that was good. So I, um. I know that our show is you and me and all that, but I had this moment the other day where a friend of mine, Chris Lunt, uh, uh-huh. was visiting, and he said that he, you know, he listens to the podcast and he oh, great. enjoyed. I mean, he enjoys the podcast, but he actually felt like he had something he wanted to say about all my Zen, um, Zen arts analogies to photography. Uh-huh. So, um, so what the heck? Uh, he and I. Uh, we we talked about it a little bit, and then we ended up uh, getting having on a Skype. really interesting conversation. So you're wait wait, let me record this. Something like that. It was good. we were talking <laughs> for a little bit, and I said, you know what, we do this. L- l- let's just record it just for fun, and and then if it's good, maybe we'll do a show with Suzanne. And uh, it was good, but I thought, oh gosh, it's never quite as spontaneous as it is in that moment. So I recorded it, and I thought maybe um, you and I could sit and listen to the show here and just listen to me and Chris. Uh, talk about this. I, you and I, I would love do a, that. That sounds amazing. Is that all right? That sounds great. Uh, play it. I feel like I saw. I, I feel play like the I'm clip. Just, <laughs> play the clip. I feel like I was sneaking around, and I'm guilty, you know. And I'm just telling you, <laughs> nothing happened. 
<laughs> you know, just a great conversation. I it swear. It was great. He didn't, uh, we weren't in the studio. It was just, <laughs> it was over Skype. So everything's cool. All right. I can't, I can't wait to hear it. All right. So this is um, from last week, my conversation with Chris Lunt. And, um, and then we'll have sort of a post, post conversation, another episode where we can kind of talk about what, what, how that went. Cool. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. Everybody, Chris Lunt. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm great. Uh, Good to be here. (laughs) So um, today on our show, we have um, my good friend, Chris Lunt, who is not only a photographer, but uh, how do you describe yourself? What what are you? Are you something? Uh, I suppose. I'm, yeah, I'm a technology leader working specifically in health research. Oh, my God. Um, But I didn't bring you here for your technical, um, medical skills. I thought that we could talk because you seem to know a lot more than I do about the Zen arts. Why is that? Why do you know so much? Uh, So I was, uh, I have an undergraduate degree in Japanese um, and uh, spent uh, a school year there and then a subsequent summer um, living in Japan and really fell in love with the art and, and, and with the aesthetic that was under underlay the art and even showed up in terms of the design as well and architecture and other places. Is, is that the, the wabi-sabi? Is that how you just would describe is that one, or is something else? Is one element of that? Uh, yeah, I think it's, there's, I think there's more than that as well. Um, that, uh, there are, you know, a set of principles that, uh, I don't think were really, really formally, formally articulated previously, but actually here, Here's a quick story. Okay. When I was an undergrad, I took um, a Japanese calligraphy class for credit. Cool. Um, and you would show up for class each week, and you would sit down, and the teacher would go to the blackboard, and there were still blackboards back then, and like take and dust the board with an eraser so it got sort of nice and, and milky chalky, and then would take a brush and dip it in water and would write Japanese characters up there in reverse sort of on the, on the blackboard. Um, and they would be, you know, three or four characters, um, that would have some particular meaning. And that was your assignment for the day. And you would spend the next hour practicing. You'd bring a bunch of old newspapers that you'd torn up, um, and you would grind your own ink. So you had an ink stone and a piece of charcoal and you would grind the ink and you would use the brush and you would try and do what she had done. And you would ask for an explanation and she would go, no. No, I want to. I want to say because you like, did you twist your wrist when you were doing this part of it to get it? No, I'm not. We're not going to talk about it. You would just do it repetitively over and over and over and over and over. She'd watch and she'd come by and she'd go. She'd go. No, no, this part's wrong. This part's wrong. You know, make it more like this or more like this. Um, and then at the end, you would do three copies um, in a better ink, like more of a commercial ink that we got a small amount of. And then she would judge them and she'd pick your best one and give you a grade. And that Whoa. Was I mean, this was the way a lot of things were taught in Japan, right? That there was no analysis. Um, that things were taught through repetition, through practice. And like, you know, they talk about how in a sushi restaurant, you know, the kid starts apprenticing and he gets to sweep the floor for three years. And then he maybe gets to like look at the rice for three years before he gets to make the rice for moves. I mean, he's not chopping, you know, fish until he's, you know, been there for, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and Japanese manufacturing processes, which were about repeating and refining and refining and refining. Um, and so when you talk about wabi-sabi, it's not like Japanese kids go to school and are sort of taught like, these are the principles of Japanese art design. Um, they don't really talk about it. These are things that we've looked at the data afterward, and we've tried to come up, and even modern Japanese, right? It's not purely Western thing. But to try and describe what are the patterns they see showing up in the tea kettle, in the building, in the sidewalk, in the painting um, that's in the house. So there was, no, there was no sort of classical text by someone in the 1500s that was, these are the principles of our art? No. And what's interesting, too, because obviously so much of what they did is rooted in Chinese culture, mm-hmm. um, but then really became something very different. You know, actually, here's a funny recent example, too, of this. Um, the current emperor of Japan is abdicating, uh, which is the first time this has happened in like 200 years. Um, he's quite old, mm-hmm. and he feels like I'm not really up to this anymore, and I'd like to just pass this on to my son now. And so years in Japan are given um, by how many years you are into the reign, right? And so we're currently in Heisei. We're currently in Heisei, um, whatever, you know, 62 or something. Um, And then they'll start the new era, but the name that they give that, they decide on the name of the new era, and they did this like a couple weeks ago, the upcoming new era that Japan's going to be in. And in the past, they'd always chosen the words and the characters from uh, from classical Chinese poetry. Huh. For the first time this year, they didn't. And they took it from ancient Japanese poetry instead. Wow. That seems very non-nationalistic to go to Chinese history for your official naming of something. But I think, you know, so all those influencers that are there in terms of Chinese art and all the early stuff that they did. And one thing I'd love to talk about from a photography perspective, right, is composition. Right. Um, and so how, you know, you start with these brush paintings that are on screens in people's houses. And so they often sort of decorate in on the corners and they just sort of leave the center very open. Um, and then they start to develop um, ukiyo-e, which are the prints um, mm-hmm. that are very famous. So like the the great wave off Kanagawa, like the big tidal wave one that everyone's seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and those prints have, again, a compositional style that I think if you compare it to Western art at that period, is so different. Um, and I know there's no real what? point in sharing our screen in terms of a podcast. Can you describe what's different about it? Um, well, I was going to, sh- I would show you, but I'll have to describe it, oh, right? Okay. Um, but, but so one of my favorites, guys sort of at the end of sort of the great period of um, ukiyo-e, these prints, did one, for example, that's uh, people in a field, um, and the horizon is very low. And at the front of the picture, are you're looking through a set of irises that are like growing up in front of the river. And you're sort of looking through those irises to see people out in that field of irises and the horizon line out there. Um, and it's this like you would, like Western paintings didn't do that. They never put sort of the camera in a sense in <laughs> that position. Um, and you find ones where like there'll be a, there's a lantern at sort of the top. It takes up a lot of the frame. Um, and it's not a picture of the lantern. The lantern's just sort of in the way of you looking out through this doorway. Uh-huh. Um, and again, was this sense of almost of a snapshot in some ways, and less sort of you know a, a, a sort of a still life or something. Wow, I'd like to see. Do you have the pictures of these? Can I see them? I do. Yeah. Maybe you can um, send them up. I mean, if we make this into a show, I definitely put that in the show notes. I'd like to see it regardless. Um, I'm fascinated by that. So you had heard me. Um, hypothesizing that Zen arts are arguably uh, highly applicable to photography, to photographic education. And 
<clears throat> the more I've been looking into each Zen art, different Zen arts, I've been finding elements that really speak to the way I think about photography. Um, in particular, issues about wabi-sabi, but um, that's sort of an overarching aesthetic. I've been looking at kintsugi, bonsai, ikebana, you know, these kinds of things, the endo, and so. So, yeah, the Zen circle. Um, the, one, of, one of the key things, right, is the fact that the circle's incomplete, right? Yeah. That's, that's sort of the thing that you see about it, is that it doesn't quite close. Right. It's it, it just that effortless elegance of that circle. Um, I, I think that, that the, the Enso is l somewhat less applicable than perhaps Ikebana, which I think is a core art form when thinking about photography because it's not, you know, I, I've been really um, pushing back on photographic teaching, which is talking about rules of thirds and right. about golden mean. These come up a lot. Yep. And, yep. Um, and part of my rationale for ultimately rejecting them, aside from a gut that says these are wrong, is that, I mean, except for, you know, in a sort of Monday morning quarterback kind of way where you can look at something and say, oh, look, that's what that's doing. But it, I think that's kind of, a bogus way to approach it um but you can have any shaped frame a square a, a long rectangle you can have a circular frame like mm -hmm. uh, chris sanford one of our guests last month um you can have all kinds of different frames and there's always elements of composite you can always compose in anything and so i i can't accept that there's a, a fundamental rule about proportions or about ratios or lines when you can have a circular frame and compose for it so yeah. to me it's not like that's an exception i would say that the other the fact that people teach those rules and then almost immediately say but you can break them anytime you want once you know them to me is that it's just giving people something to say when they don't know what to say as far as how to teach someone to compose and i think it gets in the way of actually teaching composition somehow i think ikebana which i'm not well-schooled in, somehow is going to address this in a smarter way. Ikebana never says, you do it this way. What it's saying is something about weights and harmony and balance and lines and, and looking at the various, it depends on the specific flowers you have, and it depends on many, many things. So, so I don't think it's rules of thirds. I think that harmony of elements and trying to assemble the elements you see in, in the world into this whatever frame you're using is the art of, of photographic composition and that you teach it by letting people practice moving the elements through parallax, through the motion of the camera and your body. That's the only thing you can do to control the elements that are out there. You move around like this yeah. and they... And you zoom in and out. And you can go zoom in and out. But that's... But in the... In, as opposed to... It relying on me moving things you know yes mm -hmm. you can of mm -hmm. course go into a studio and move things around but the art of photography to me is seeing things that you cannot control moving yourself around which composes them in the frame yeah so and if you think yeah from an ikebana perspective right you think about bringing um the you know a sort of a twisted cherry branch into the picture like you can't i can't change the shape Right. Necessarily the way that that twist is, it's an element then, though, that I'm able to sort of choose where I'm positioning it relative to the other things. Right. And because it that twists in 3D space, 
there's many ang- you can imagine there's many angles you can take on that twisted branch where you're not fully it's like bunched up in too too many ways it's too in line or you're sideways and you miss this and i think or there's another flower behind it so you lose the cool little thing and you got to move so you see the flower and it's above like that i think would teach someone composition if you give them a bunch of flowers or give them some objects and then have them move around and try to put well, them into the frame yeah and it teaches uh, it provides an opportunity to compose Correct. But but does not teach composition necessarily. Well, I think, like, as you were saying, maybe in this sort of Japanese style, you don't teach composition. You just start moving things around, and you watch me do it, and you do it yourself. And at some point, the data resolves into an understanding of what it feels right. And there are no literal rules. You could not list them you might be able to come up with a couple things you're doing sometimes, whatever. But the reality is that composition is just like like those brush strokes. You just do it until it feels harmonious. Is that a, like a crappy way to teach something? To tell someone that you can't actually teach, learn it that any other way? Um, you can see places where it's worked and where it hasn't worked, right? I feel like um, that there are... And this even shows up, like I mentioned, sort of in Japanese manufacturing, like that they took the automobile, something that was really invented here, took the methods that were developed by Edward Deming um, and put together a process, though, that produced a car that just got better and better and better and got better than anything that was being made in the U.S. How? Um, Constant improvement. The idea that you're never actually you've never learned how to do it right. That each repetition is another chance to find a way to make it even better. Hmm. And that maybe there isn't perfection in that there is not an end point to that, but mm-hmm. rather there is movement towards it, um, that you can get closer to it. You'll never actually get there. Um, so you don't stop changing your process. Hmm. And you make the people who do it part of the people who create the process of doing it as well. Like you engage your workers um, in that. So you could stop the line in a Toyota plant. Like if you saw something was wrong, you could go and stop the line. As a guy who's responsible for like, you know, tightening a nut somewhere. Um, in an American plant, did not stop the line, no matter what. One time they'd screwed up and they were like switching over from like Skylark production to some other production and they got the front half of one car and the back half of the other car coming down the line and people were like, <laughs> just work on them and we'll take them apart when they get out to the lot later tonight. And so they just, yeah, produced all these like weird half cars and then went out and like took the parts back to feed them back into the beginning because they were so afraid to stop the line. Wow. They were completely disempowered. Um, and so it was also about making the individuals part of that process. So it's interesting thinking from a teacher-student perspective, too. Yeah, how much do you want to stand in front of a board and go, and this is a good photo for this reason, this is a good photo for this reason, versus saying, like, I've laid a set of elements in front of you. Move them around and find something that speaks to you in some way. Um, and and tell me why we'll talk about Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a, a lot of right answers, and they're clearly wrong answers. You know, I mean, things that don't, feel good to most people and, and unless you're I would, going you know, i'm going to push back and say okay. it's not that they're even the wrong answers there are answers that are less right right like okay. there may be because you've all heard like the album that you're like there's there's you know two people out in the world who love this album and everyone else hates it 
right? And is it wrong? <laughs> Not for those two people. You're um, right. You're and right. so, yeah, there's maybe photographs out there that you and I would go like, well, this is a waste of paper. Um, but, uh, yeah, but there's an audience that's really looking for that. Oh, um, that's actually um, a interesting point. There's also photographers like uh, Deanne Arbus, who is photographing subjects that are difficult and purposely frequently using compositions that are difficult to kind of reinforce the difficulty in the subject. And it's another plaything. You can't separate the composition from the content they all go together to make this picture feel beautiful or and this picture feel challenging that's the artist's job is to assemble content and composition in the frame to give you whatever they want to give you right yeah um it, that kind of ties into haiku which is another art form that i like not just for its simplicity but it it really points out to me the artificial constraints that are created um, to work against. It's it's not like haiku is better than free verse or some other poetic form. It's just another poetic form. And to me, photography is a is a poetic form. It, it's like writing, and you can go into photography and create these constraints. I don't want to crop. I want to use square frames. I want it black and white. I don't want it posed. I, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. There's no right or wrong. But I'm, you know, I would say for any particular photographer, you might choose your poetic constraints that you want to work against. You don't want infinite stuff. It's fun to see if you can make a haiku or a limerick. And I would say that. Um, that's something that photography is for people, particularly now that everyone has a camera and can take pictures um, ad nauseum, right? It, it, like, why am I taking pictures? And I'm like, well, let's give myself, let's, let's make a game out of it. Let's make it harder for me. Let, let's say I have to make something interesting given I'm only going to use natural light. I really like um, your comparison of photography to haiku. And I hadn't really thought about it before, but you have actually, and so quick history on haiku. Haiku is part of a much longer form of poem that people used to do as sort of a party game. And this was even, this had gone back to China, but people would sit down and one person would, would give the opening trio, which is the haiku, the five, seven, five. Mm -hmm. He would do that and that would start the poem. And then it would go to the next person and they did these uh, four-line responses, and they went around and tried to, and first person try and tell some sort of story. But the first guy's job then is he gets to choose basically the theme, like hmm. this is what this was going to be about, or here's sort of the setting. Um, and the thing is, is like that was the most fun part of the game. So some people would be like, oh, no, I don't want to use that three-line thing. I got a better one. Listen to my three-line thing. And it became people just started to do the three lines that we know as haiku now. But the interesting then to, to think that the the haiku itself was supposed to be sort of a snapshot from a much bigger world that you were going to go develop. But it was the essence of what that world was captured in that. And so that photography is that sort of like, I'm showing you this much, and it's implying all these other things that came into or are going out of what's happening here in this moment that I captured. That's cool. Um, Can I share one more haiku story that may please, be relevant? For please. This? I love uh, haiku. I, you know, even... Before I realized the comparisons of haiku and photography for me, I had um, I spent a few years back around the turn of the century. I love saying that. Um, just writing a lot of haiku. I spent a lot of time writing haiku. So you know, I, 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 please tell tell haiku stories. 
So there was a, a a great master of haiku who had a student who came to him very excited. He's like, Master, I have finally written the haiku that will elevate me to be a master as well. And he goes, well, tell it to me. And he said, dragonflies take off their wings and they are pepper pods. His master went, oh, you were so close. He said, you should have said pepper pads, put wings on them and they're dragonflies. Wow. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I also like haiku. Um, and what I like, one of the things I like about it, you know, one of the things that we we're talking about earlier, the wabi-sabi, um, uh, shibui is the concept of minimalism. What is it? Shibui. 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 Um, and it's about like doing something in a direct and simple way, not being flashy, sort of being elegant about it, but being simple. Right. Um, and yeah, a poem that's written out of, you know, 17 syllables doesn't give you room to be anything but. Right. Um, I can I can appreciate, I bet, it's interesting to me that I know you, how much you like black and white photography. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to also be sort of fall into that aesthetic. This yeah. idea of like, I'm going to remove things and make this even more simple. Um, yes, I think, and, and even the Enso talks a little bit about like there is something about the grayscale of a lot of those arts that they just they get rid of superfluous distractions and they mean that in terms of color as well as other lines that are not necessary um the black and white for me it it is like seven it's like a longer poem when it's in color it's easy to be beautiful and flashy and uh, adorned in color it's pretty you know it's but you take away the color and it's not pretty anymore. Can I still make it beautiful? Like that's a little harder. That's a worthwhile project for me to see if I can do that. It doesn't mean, oh, put color in. Of course, it's nice. It's nicer. That isn't, yeah, yes. Yes, it is nicer. It, it also might be more distracting or less, I find it less elegant, right? It's just busy. It feels like my eyes all over the place. I, I reduce that by taking it into black and white. Um, do you play around at all and sort of, you know, the spaces in between, like just black, white, and red, or? I, I don't much. I occasionally will do something. If I really feel like the color, I want color in there. Sometimes I take the saturation just down to the point that it, there's still color in it, but it's not colorful. But sometimes you just need that hint of something. I haven't done it as like a duotone where you're just working with, and I, and I kind of resist photographs where someone goes into technology and has a black and white picture with like red lips or one object in color. It feels like it's demanding attention in a way that couldn't, it's just screaming and it feels kind of cloying to me. It, 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 sometimes it's fun, but in general, I'm not a, a big fan of that. It feels almost gimmicky. I can't look at that mm -hmm. all day. There was another um, uh, Zen art uh, idea. I can't remember the name of it. I could pull it up here in a second. But it was talking about doing things, and these were um, principles of Zen and not necessarily of Zen arts. But it was talking about um, doing things not for money, not for reward, that you just do them to do them, not for any reason. And I, it, it, it reminded me of the feeling that I've had about photography, which is I, I insist that I do it as an amateur, that I, that um, 
that amateur literally is doing something for the love of it and not for commerce, not not for reward, not for likes. You're just doing it for fun. And um, and I remembered uh, when I was writing Droid Maker that uh, Coppola had been described as aspiring to be an amateur. Like he was a professional who aspired to be an amateur. And I've hung on to that sentence for de- a decade now. I, I aspire to be an amateur. The more, the better I get and the more um, I, I have opportunities to sell things and, and behave like a professional, I meditate on this idea of not going down that path. It's like the, it's like the dark force. <laughs> Can I do this just because I'm, I want to do it out of an inner need and not to please anyone else, not for any other purpose, not for money? Um, and I think now that everybody has a smartphone, that's much more the case of photography. People, if they're taking pictures, are doing it for themselves and not for money, not for jobs. They're just, they've got a camera. Now they might be doing but it for likes. Still, they might yeah, be doing still it gonna be, yeah, but the like is really is a proxy for this idea that like I want to share an emotional feeling that I get looking at something with other people. Um, and that, I don't think that's, that's I, I don't know that I consider that an ennoble goal. It's certainly not an ennoble goal. It's certainly, it's part of the human condition that we want to do that. To please um, other I guess people the question as opposed is, to pleasing yourself? No, not about pleasing people. It's about communicating with other people, about taking something that you've experienced and wanting to share it with them in some way. Hmm. It's about making a connection with other people. Um, that what drives people to, you know, you know get up on stage and perform or, or, um, or act in something. Sometimes, yeah, there's, there's a, an aspect of like, I need, um, validation, right. Um, you know, or I need to feel like I have, um, status in my society. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a, underneath that often is this other drive to go, you are a different intelligence than I am. And I want to bridge that gap. I want to find some way to get us to sort of be the same on something, to experience something together. Um, and that connection, which drives all of sort of our social behavior, um, I think is a, if you call it beautiful or good or bad, I think it's just part of what we are as humans that we want to share. Well, um, and to know, to get the feedback, am I sharing or not, is rewarding. To just see people say, oh, someone read it. Whether they even liked it or not, like it just made me feel good to know that someone read it. Yeah, made a try. I could I could back off of that position. That's not in. I'm not intractable about that. And you know, I might be able to be convinced you can sell stuff too, and it doesn't take away. But some something in the in the purity of creating for the love of doing it and not for any other reason appealed to me. It, well, it, it's always appealed to me in photography, and it was nice to see that it's a tenant uh, in Zen. It gives you so much freedom. Like, right, without that, if you're worried about, like, oh, are they going to understand this? Are they going to connect with this? Let that go. Yeah. Make it for yourself. Yeah. Like, if you love it, it makes you happy. If other people find that they love it, too, that's awesome. That's a great outcome. But that's not the primary driver. I wanted I wanted to like it first. Um, there's also bonsai. Do you, have you, have you done that art? No, um, I've observed. Um, I've fasc- seen some it's great fascinating. stuff. I find it really um, fascinating. And I think that one of the things about, <clears throat> I'd always seen it as just like little adorable trees. It's like a toy poodle or something, right? It's just, they're just miniature and cute. But the art of bonsai is about seeing the universe in everything. And 
Zen talks about the universe in a grain of sand. And I hear those things, but I didn't really think about it until I combined that with the thing that I feel very deeply about photography, which is a sort of Greek literary idea called synecdoche, which is, you know, a part for the whole. And I feel like everything in photography is synecdoche. You cannot record everything. You cannot see everything. You can't know everything. You have to summarize both time. Scale of the map is one mile equals one mile. Right. I love that Stephen Wright joke. Um, You have to take time and boil it down to a fraction of a second. You have to take visual space and cut it down to a tiny little postage stamp. And you, you take your whole vacation and... Can you, can you sum up your vacation in a frame or two, in a moment or two? Can you sum up Chris Lunt in a photograph? Is it his face? Is it his hands? Is it the reflection? In his, like how am, it, It's all synecdoche, right? It's a, it's a poetic literary form, and I think that it's the fundamental part of what makes photography photography. And I think that Banzai is speaking to that idea, that, that you do not need to have a giant tree to experience the joy of a tree. You there, you can capture the essence in anything if you do it right. And I think that photography is like a, a bonsai version of life, uh, of something bigger. Does that make any sense? Is that just correct? It does. Talking? I mean, the things that are very different for me are part of how, yeah, longer-term bonsai is having... Well, okay, and I'll, maybe I'm coming around on this. Like, I find it interesting. I've, I've been to, to your place and have seen the photographs that you have on your wall. And that to be familiar with a photograph and to have a photograph hanging in your house are different experiences. Um, that now I have a relationship in some way. It's like they, I moved in with this idea, right? I didn't just, I'm not just dating like this thing. Like I actually <laughs> I'm not just dating this, this idea. Um, I'm living with this idea. I'm living with this idea. And I'm not even ashamed of other people come to my house and go like, Oh, look what you live with. Um, and so that a bonsai too, like is, is not only just about like, like, Oh, look, it's a cute little tree. Like for the people who have them, like, it's like, I, I care for this thing too, right? It's a living object. And I sort of, I feed it and I, I keep it sort of shaped and I help it to develop over time, mm-hmm. which is, that's what's a little different. Like a photograph is done at some level, right? Uh-huh. It's been taken. Your relationship can change because you change, but the photograph doesn't change. Correct. Anymore. Correct. Inter- it's interesting. I mean, it doesn't, definitely the picture doesn't, evolve it would be the i mean i guess bonsai is a lifelong process right it once you 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 don't sculpt a bonsai tree and then be gone it never ends right and a photograph is definitely not not that unless you want to reframe that as um i re i revisit many things in photography i go back and with my camera to something that i've seen a a person a place whatever and there is a, a joy in returning to that thing and revisiting it and re-experiencing it, re-translating it into a photograph. Maybe that is the part of the bonsai art is to keep going back to it. How many, have you intentionally gone somewhere for the express purpose of taking a photo you'd taken once before, but later in time? Yeah. Yes, I have. In a couple different ways. I've gone back to visit people or artists who I've who I want to kind of follow them through their art life. I've gone back to just last week I was in Los Angeles and I went back to the neighborhood that I had owned a house in in Hollywood and walked through the streets that I had, you know, lived on for years and I just wanted to see 
how I experience them, like what things are the same, what things yeah, have changed. Yeah, but you didn't, I'm saying, but you went back specifically to recapture. Like, so I can, I have, um, funny, this gets to Japan again. One of the pictures I have from when I lived there in 1992 um, was a picture of Tokyo Tower um, at dawn. Um, I'd been out all night, and it's just a shot as the sun's coming up, and it's sort of silhouetted down this canyon of buildings. And we were in, uh, I was in Japan a couple of years ago, and I'm in Tokyo, and I realized, I'm like, wait a minute, I think I'm really close to where I took that photo. Let me walk and see if we can find the same spot, and I'll take the same photo again in mm. 2017. Mm-hmm. So um, That's this different. is over 20 years later. Um, but to be fair, I was already there in Japan and mm-hmm. sort of stumbled across the opportunity, less than me like looking and seeing a photo I have and going like, you know what, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to take this again. Huh. I mean, I've gone back to, like, I shoot... Um, icons a lot, Coit Tower, Golden Gate Bridge, things that are heavily photographed to see if A, I can bring anything personal to it, different, unique to it, and B, um, I don't know if there's a friggin' B, but um, you know, I, I keep going back to things to see how, if, if I've grown. So it's, it's sort of a personal test, right? If Can I bring anything to Coit Tower? One of my favorite photographs, I think it's here somewhere, um, is of this tower at like five in the morning. I've never been able to take another photograph of that place that I like that much, but I keep going back. Okay, yeah. So is that- And you keep you keep photographing the church that you can see from your house as well. That's right, and it keeps raising the bar. The more familiar I am with it, the more times I see it, the more I get tired of the usual view, and the more willing I am to try things you know, as Suzanne says in our podcast, get the cliche out of the way. Like you gotta take, for me at least, I have to get that picture that is the one that you always take of the Golden Gate Bridge or Coit Tower or the church. But once I've got that out of the way, I am free to try something harder, a little more unusual. And uh, so, yeah. It's funny. I do feel like this is almost more of the bonsai, right? Is that like your relationship to the church Mm-hmm. Is one where you're like, I'm going to keep sort of revisiting this thing that I'm trying to sort of understand in some uh-huh. way. I'm trying to capture it in just the right way. And I'm going to vary it a little bit. I've got this little thing. I'm trying to make this like a big tree. And I'm going to let it grow on this side a little bit. No, I'm going to cut back on that. And here's a chance where you have some subject you love that you can, through photography, trim it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I mean... There's a couple interesting elements about bonsai. I mean, I guess I had thought of it in the sort of synecdoche way of the universe, seeing the universe in this thing, but the idea that it's about a lifelong pruning of something, of working something, that's cool. I like that. Um, What else do we have? Enso, Ikebana, bonsai. Oh, we haven't talked about kintsugi which is yeah. arguably my favorite of all of these. It's the one I'm almost closest with at some level because of my ceramic stores. Um, and I love cracks. You know, it's my favorite It's my favorite um, motif. When I see a crack, it's the, it's like a, it's the cherry branch. That's, it's the fractal line. Um, and I'm always looking for a more perfect crack. And I photo, I've been photographing cracks for 30 years. Um, and to me, it's it's not that there's a, something wrong. I love those cracks. And when someone explained Kintsugi to me, 
I, I was like, I found my thing the, to, to make that crack the most valuable part of it, to make this crappy, broken thing into something that's now jewelry and wonderful. What an, a great expression. And uh, in some ways, it's the perfect articulation of wabi-sabi. Like the, the, the flaws are what make it valuable in all of us, right? We say that all the time, but there it is. It's also, it's also honestly, it's kind of a really funny joke um, that uh, you look at sort of where this starts with, and the first time, it's funny, when I sort of formally studied um, Japanese art, I didn't uh, run across this or it didn't sink in. I didn't remember it. And then I was with my wife in Japan in 2001 and we visited um, at the Suntory building, they had a display of some like sort of classic Japanese um, artifacts. Um, and one of them was a cup with, that had been repaired with gold, carved for the Kintsugi cup. That's the first I'd seen. I was like, that's brilliant. Like, and it's so funny because you had this pastime, you know, cha do, like all the, these are all the ikibana do, and they're all do's, they're ways, right? Ways, yes. right? They're sort of a form, right? And so you have the tea way, right? And the tea ceremony and the tea houses and all the things that this built up around tea, which was a huge thing back in the same period. Um, and they were striving for these very wealthy people making this feel rustic and earthy and real and like no like and back to that sort of that minimalism shibui like and i'm just going to make this feel um really natural what's the um shizen mm -hmm. shizen is like absence of pretense yes um and so they would specifically get like instead of a beautiful cup like an earthenware cup that was like a little badly made like a little uneven like oh this is just some peasant's cup we're not going to have a really fancy rich people party to drink tea out of mm -hmm. and then so i take this really simple cup and it cracks and and that's like oh my god that makes it even better right <laughs> and but i'm going to fill it with gold um which is just making fun of it like, like you got the crappiest cup that you could and you repaired it with gold far more <laughs> valuable than this like cheap peasant cup in the first place and i think they did that smiling the whole time right like i think they, they fully recognized that the whole thing was kind of funny that's so weird um wow let me think about that for a second and it doesn't diminish the fact that the most valuable part is the flaw at some level but it's the thing that makes it different and unique it was a perfect cup if they were all perfect cups i wouldn't be able to distinguish one from the other Oh, they're, they're mass produced. If you make a, a million cups, they're nothing is special. Isn't I mean that's the thing that people talk about all the time. That like what makes the diamond valuable is the flaw. And and Pete, when you see models sometimes, and they have a mole here, or their nose yeah, is whatever. Yeah. And at first you're like, that's so, you know, that's not right. It's and then too you realize, bad they ruined it. Yeah. Yeah, and then you realize no, that's that's what makes it great. You know, Marilyn Monroe's little mole, you, you Photoshop that out. You know, the, it's one of my issues, the wabi-sabi uh, is one of my issues with Photoshop and retouching and stuff like that. It's like you're, you're taking away the imperfections that I think make something real and connected. And as you smooth those over, you're just turning this into something that's a mass-produced object at yeah. some level. Yeah. Or now you're into a very different kind of art. It, it is a different card, and, and and honestly, I don't have a problem. I love Photoshop, and I I love special effects, and I work on you know multiple image things. But to me, none of those are ph photography. Yeah, those are just those are photographic arts, 
Those are arts that you do with... And remember in, in Star Wars that um, one of the things that Lucas had said, I don't know if you remember, one of the things that Lucas had instructed to Ben Burt and to Ralph McQuarrie, the people who are designing the, the look and sound of this world that he's invented, was that it's, he called it used space. He didn't want it, like up to that point, spaceships were clean and everything was pristine and he's like you know what i think that after 50 years the ship's got banged up and it's and and the sounds that you're using aren't going to be science fiction sounds they're going to be sounds you're used to hearing machines and motors and things like that and so ben burt made these sounds that were all unique but composed of pieces that were familiar and so they go into us as feeling familiar even though they're alien and that's what happens in photoshop or at least in the work of jerry ulsman and, and my work where you you're sampling the world you're taking things that, that are familiar and you're putting them together in a way so they feel familiar it feels real but you know it's not real it's it's this fantastical thing the problem is when you're passing it off as real you know yeah and and unfortunately, online, the context that explains this stuff gets stripped off very easily, and you're left with an image that people have an immediate reaction to. Oh, my God, look at that. And it's like, really? Who's going to sit around and find out whether that's real or not? I've already had the reaction. It's like when the, the judge tells someone to you know, disregard that statement, inflammatory <laughs> statement. It's like, well, they all heard it, so I, I, you know, it's too late but now. It's interesting, and this gets back to, I think, a conversation you and I had previously about sort of what is real in terms of if you look at a bird book. Like often the better bird book is the one where the bird is drawn rather than it being a photograph because you're looking for sort of the the er bird you're looking for yeah. right the the platonic the, ideal the, yeah, of the bird yeah exactly the archetype of the bird yeah not a, not a bird not a specific bird this is Frank right I can know yes I saw <laughs> did you see Frank yes I got him in my book and I checked him off. Um, and so when you look at Photoshop at some level it makes sense like if I've got a model who's got clothes on I, it's almost like yeah, I'm not really showing like. A specific woman I'm just showing women of a particular type and I'm gonna make her kind of bland um, like so the you clothes, know, nothing so interesting the clothes are featured or that so that the person looking at the image can put themselves into it at some yes. level yeah. if it's too unique that becomes a picture of Steve or that's right Martha right. or of Cindy Crawford or of like other models who at some point stopped just showing up in catalogs right and became something else remember when um, I don't know if it's a remember when um, in movies Sometimes an actor is becomes so famous they can't really play yeah. anything else because you. When I see Leonard Nimoy, that's Spock, and it just, yeah. he's ruined. He's been ruined, right? It's like you can't pull that off, and that happens for a lot of actors. It's so amazing when an actor can really malleable become malleable and be all kinds of different people, and you yeah. never you like really that's, that's Daniel you know, Day Lewis who. Daniel Day-Lewis. I just oh. would give an example of somebody, despite having been in many iconic roles, I think keeps showing up in a way that's brand so brand new that he can transcend that. Right. So my point is only that you yep. don't. But if you're Tom to... Hanks, you're not getting. You're not going to play the bad guy. Right, Tom. <laughs> Even Hanks, if you yeah. tried, people would be sympathetic. Oh, look, it's Tom Hanks. <laughs> it would be hard, and it's always disorienting to see someone who is that person playing this person because it seems. Uh, it's it's a misfit somehow because you, you know who they are. It's great when it's an unknown person. You don't even know. Is that person really like that? Like, oh, my yeah. God, are they acting? 
like, oh, wait, he has a British accent. He's faking this. Like, I know him, so I know it's fake. I can't even let go of that, the suspension of disbelief that's required to enjoy this. Um, I'm not Did sure. Did you, uh, and this will made me think about Humphrey Bogart and the treasure of the Sierra Madre, where he mm-hmm. plays a complete bastard, um, which is sort of fun to watch. But uh, it made me curious. Are you also a fan of black and white film, of, of motion pictures? Interesting. Uh, not in the sense of I love black and white movies. There are many movies that are in black and white that I love. I don't think it's because of their black and whiteness. I don't think that that's an attribute to me. Cinema, well, I would say even like take, I think Citizen Kane is a better movie in black and white than it would have been in color. Oh, yeah, probably for the same reason that many great Ansel Adams pictures are better in black and white than they would be in color. Um, you can't separate those two things out. But there's color movies that are great and black and white movies that are great. Uh, you know, I think that photography is different from cinema in a lot of, like, I mean, I guess that's stating the obvious. But I don't have a problem. The things that I like about photography are, for me personally, involve some of these ideas of Zen of of going out into the world and being incredibly present and seeing with beginner's mind and 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 then capturing something that's sort of elegant or beautiful and is simple right i'm trying to like in bonsai i'm trying to remove effluvia i'm trying to get to the you, core of what i like you again hmm? show more show more by showing less i want to show more right and and because i don't want to go set that up it, it's a, an art or it's a craft or it's something to go out and see if you can can catch it in film. I use depth of field to make the background less distracting. So I'm simplifying this a little bit, or I want the juxtaposition of the object there and this object here. I'm playing games with all of those elements to decide what I reveal, what I hide, what I show, how much do I need to show, how little. Cinema isn't like that. It's a completely different thing. You're telling a story. It's lots of images. I I mean, there are filmmakers. uh, Ozu was a Japanese filmmaker from I guess the fifties and you know, he had that this sort of Japanese aesthetic where he, the camera's locked down and it's very simple. And he, I don't think there's any moving shots in an Ozu film. Right. So he, he didn't need to do that. So he did can Tokyo be def- story, right? What did he do Tokyo story? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'd have um, to Google him. I'm checking. But my point is only that yes. the thing that I like about cinema and the thing I like about photography, the thing I like about cinema isn't its photographicness. Like that's just a different kind of game for me. Um, whereas um, cinema, it's a story. I like disappearing into someone's fantastical story of some kind. So, and I don't get that it, any more than the the haiku is the, replaces a novel. Like it's just. Right. A different thing. It doesn't mean that there's not elegance in the novel, but like I, I like haiku for a certain kind of reason. So photography isn't really documenting in that sense. Well, okay. Well, well. Uh, I think this is enough to sort of record. I love this topic. All right. Well, um, to the degree this is a show, thank you for thanks for doing yeah. this with me. I love this topic, and I like that it's not classically photography i mean we're not really sitting and talking about f-stops and shutter speeds and and lenses and stuff like that but i think this is the core of photography and uh, you're the perfect guest for this 
uh, I don't know, maybe there's a, a Zen master somewhere who would have something to add to this, but this is my level of happiness. This is great. Um, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. Yeah, we just scrape from the surface. There's plenty more we can dig in on. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I will cut this together as something, and it might be 45 minutes, and um, you know, I'll find a time to put it out there. I, I really, I thought this was a great conversation, so thanks. Yeah, my pleasure.